Please turn in your Bibles to Nahum chapter 2. I believe the page number in my Bible may be the same as the Pew Bible, so that would, if that's true, it should be around page 782. Now, you may have come here this morning expecting to hear from the book of Romans and hear Pastor Greco preach as he has preached faithfully for the last number of weeks on the, uh, the book of Romans. But this morning, I'm picking up the small series that I am doing and last did back in January um, as we preached through this little book of Nahum in the Old Testament. So if you remember from that uh, sermon a uh, number of months ago, we saw that Nahum is a book that really focuses upon God's judgment, and it's, a, it's God's judgment upon the nation of Assyria, and specifically upon its capital, Nineveh. Remember with me, if you will, we talked the, um, in the first sermon when we looked at this, remember Jonah, which is a much familiar book to many of us, Jonah went and preached in Nineveh after running, initially running from God. He preached in Nineveh, and God brought about a, a, a large-scale revival in the midst of Nineveh. But here we are in the book of Nahum several years later, um, over a hundred years later, and Nineveh has been consumed with wickedness, and they are the feared superpower of their day. And if you read in the history books of the atrocities of this empire, it's shocking And God in Nahum 2 is bringing judgment upon the people of Assyria and the the city of Nineveh. The Assyrians, of course, were responsible for carrying Israel into captivity and basically obliterating the northern ten tribes of Israel in 722 B.C. They had threatened Judah for years, and we'll see this morning that God is the judge but also that he will restore and redeem his people. Now, as we read this text, please notice the vivid language that the prophet Nahum uses to describe the assault and the collapse of the city of Nineveh. He really gives us a blow-by-blow account, even many years before it actually took place, for Nahum prophesied this before Assyria fell. And we read in the history books that, yes, Assyria did fall, as Nahum promised, as the Lord promised through his prophet. Let me point out that this chapter moves from a proclamation of destruction in verse 1 to a proclamation of restoration for Judah in verse 2 to a colorful description of the battle and fall of Nineveh in verses 3 through 10. And then the prophet makes a mocking analogy of the the city of Nineveh being like a lion who had, who had preyed upon its own enemies and then has now will fall. The chapter ends with a mighty and I might say sobering crescendo of God's interpretations of his actions. As he explains that the reason that Nineveh is be, being destroyed is that God is against them. So let us pray and then let us read God's holy word. Let us bow. Lord God, your word is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And Lord, I pray that it would go in cutting and come out cutting, that it would remove sin from our hearts, that it would expose sin that we try to keep hidden within the recesses of our heart, 
that it would shine light upon us, and that we would sit under the authority of Almighty God as He has spoken to us in His Holy Word this morning. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in Thy sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Nahum 2. The scatterer has come up against you. Man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle, collect all your strength. For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. For plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. The shield of his mighty men are red. His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. The chariots come with flashing metal on the day he musters them. The cypress spears are brandished. The chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro through the squares. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. He remembers his officers. They stumble as they go. They hasten to the wall. The siege tower is set up. The river gates are open. The palace melts away. Its mistress is stripped. She is carried off, her slave girls lamenting, moaning like doves and beating upon their breasts. Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. Halt, halt, they cry, but none turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There is no end of the treasure or of the wealth of all precious things. Desolate, desolation and ruin. Hearts melt and knees tremble. Anguish is in all loins, all faces grow pale. Where is the lion's den, the feeding place of the young lions, where the lion and lioness went, where his cubs were with none to disturb? The lion tore enough for his cubs and strangled prey for his lionesses. He filled his caves with prey and his dens with torn flesh. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. Amen. And we praise God that He has spoken to us in His holy and inerrant word this morning. There are some chapters in God's word that seem to naturally lend themselves to an outline that is easily applicable to our lives. However, I don't think Nahum chapter 2 is, is one of those. As I wrestled with this passage, I had to sit under the authority of God's Word and recognize that, yes, I do believe in the inspiration of Scripture, that it is inspired by God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect or complete, as the ESV says, thoroughly furnished for all good works. Even Nahum 2 is that for us. And there's something that we need from Nahum 2. We read more about the destruction of Nineveh here, and as we learn about it, we see the character of God. And it teaches us more of the big picture of who God is. And I want to consider this chapter under three maybe broad headings that we can, we can take home with us today. First of all, that God will fulfill His purposes. Secondly, it's very evident, saints of God, that God will destroy His enemies as we see what happened with the Assyrians. And thirdly, we can take comfort knowing that God will restore His people. If you remember, as we've already said, 
Nahum, at the time of this prophecy, was really at the top of their power. They were at the top of their game. The apex of their rule was when God chose to speak through the prophet Nahum. And Nineveh was at the top of their game. Yet God's purposes stood fast in what he said. God will fulfill his purposes. God's purposes or his decrees, we sometimes say, are the things that God has sovereignly, on his own, determined will come to pass. They are God's eternal and unchangeable will concerning the events that most assuredly will take place. We know that his purposes are his and his alone. He spoke through the prophet Isaiah and said, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient time things not done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. He goes on, calling a bird of prey from the east and the man of counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. This is what the Lord God says. And God doesn't need to consult us about the best course of action to take. However, how often do we pray as though he needs our counsel? How often do we think about a major decision and we go into it without a a teachable heart, a seeking heart, a yielding heart? And then we pray as though we know best, saying something like, well, I know this one college may take me far from home and not have a good church or a campus ministry where my soul is fed. But yet, Lord, if you allow me to get into this college, that will look good on my resume. Putting our agenda into our prayers instead of seeking what God would have. God does not need our help to accomplish his purposes in us. God's decrees, his purposes are his alone. They are not determined by our wishes and desires, or even by what we see as adverse circumstances. His decrees, his purposes are his alone. The second thing we know about his purposes is that he doesn't always explain them. And that is a little bit difficult at times. We have within us a deep desire to understand the events of things that that take place. I think of my children. Some of them are very happy-go-lucky and just kind of take takes life take life as it comes to them. Others are planners and they want to know what's going to happen. And we naturally want explanations. Certainly when there's a tragedy or accident, we often ask why. When I worked in manufacturing, I think about how we always had to fill out accident reports, even for a minor accident on the factory floor. And we had to ask that question, why? But not just once, we had to ask it five times to try to get to the root cause of what had taken place in order to make a safer workplace. But God doesn't always tell us why he does what he does. God is God and he is under no obligation to tell us such things. Deuteronomy 29, 29, I hope is a passage that's familiar to you because it sheds light on this thing that I often wrestle with and I expect many here do as well. That verse says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. God tells us what we need to know to live pleasing to him. Yet he leaves some things unknown 
to us. There are secret things about God, unrevealed things, things that we cannot know this side of heaven and probably will not care to know on the other side. If you've read John Calvin and and he writes in the Institutes about this and he says that he cautions us from a discontented wondering and speculation that will not rest in God's sovereignty. He wrote concerning the mystery of predestination. He said, for scripture does not remind us of predestination to increase our audacity or our disrespect, as he's using it there, and tempt us to pry with impious presumption into the inscrutable counsels of God, but rather to humble and abase us, that we may tremble at his judgment and learn to look up to his mercy. And I think that's what Nahum chapter 2 should do for us. It should teach us to tremble at his judgment and look up to his mercy for us, his people, through Jesus Christ. We should rejoice in and seek to understand all that we can about God and His ways based upon what has been revealed to us, and He has revealed much to us in His Word. But we must also rest content in knowing that there's some things that we cannot know. This is part of our understanding that He is God and we are not. And if you step back and think about it, think about the fact that He is the Creator, and we are products of His creation. He as I've said before and need to continually remind myself that he owns us. He has every right to demand obedience to us and he has no obligation to fully explain the things he does because he is God. We, we are comforted. We can find comfort in Scripture as we wrestle through these things. We see in the, in the Psalms, we see David wrestling with envy of the wicked who seem to prosper so easily. And, and he even says things like, why, does, why do the wicked prosper? Why am I forsaken? And yet then, in the end, so often, he consoles himself in the presence of God, resting in the sweet presence of his God who he knows loves him. A hymn that's a favorite of mine was um, called God Moves in a Mysterious Way. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. And then Cooper goes on with words that, that I need. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. And then the final verse says, Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. The writer of this hymn was one who was given to depression and wrestled with with doubts within his own heart. And no doubt these words that he wrote were a comfort to him as he wrestled through that aspect of his faith. One thing that we know that even if we cannot understand all the things about God's purposes, we know that they are good. 
because they come to us from a good God. His purposes are His alone. He does not always explain them, but we know that His purposes are good. And He is working everything after the counsel of His own will for our good and for His glory. When we considered in Nahum 1, we said that all, God is good to all men, and in a general way He is, but in a very specific and special way, He is good to His own. But you may be asking, what does this have to do with Nahum and the destruction of Assyria? Well, we learn from the purpose, about the purposes of God from passages like Nahum 2. For many years, God's people had been involved in idolatry. God was angry for their sin, and as He had purposed and as He had promised, God brought about their exile and destruction from their sin. However, God is now prophesying judgment and destruction upon the destroyer. God announces the Assyrian destruction in verse 1. And there's a certain irony in these words. And it's almost like a general is mustering his troops for battle. And yet it is God's pronouncement that destruction is coming. Notice with me the, the, the strength of the words. He says, man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle, collect all your strength as though those things might have some significance. Yet we know that they did not in the face of Almighty God, who used the Babylonians and the Medes to bring destruction upon Nineveh. No matter how strong the Assyrians look or feel, God had spoken against them. And while here at the time of the writing of, in the book of Nahum, it was just prophesied, we know that God brought it to pass. God was against them, and he will surely accomplish his purposes. Secondly, we see very plainly in this text that God will destroy his enemies. That is really the major theme of this chapter and really the whole book. We see it vividly described in verses 3 to 13. The soldiers are clothed in scarlet, their shields red with blood. The metal fittings and armor upon their chariots flash in the sunlight while they race madly through the streets. Some commentators think that this is likely a a description of the early stages of the battle. Nineveh, the city of Nineveh, had multiple defenses, and this may have been a battle for the control of the outermost areas of the city. Assyria seemed to win the first battle, which kept the Medes and the Babylonians outside the, the walls. One commentator said that this victory led to a drunken celebration on the part of the Assyrians, which the enemy used to their advantage and took the area up to the inner wall. Verse verse 5 describes a desperate defense against the onslaught of invaders who are quickly maneuvering their siege tower into place. Then the enemies of Nineveh released the pent-up waters which they had dammed up, bringing an overwhelming flood into the city. Many of you know what floodwaters can do and the damage that can be brought with them. And Greek historians have said that the enemy used the waters of nearby flooded rivers and diverted them into Nineveh, bringing destruction with them. Archaeologists have discovered flood degree at the highest levels of the ancient civilization. That leads them to believe that water was an essential weapon in their destruction. Verse 8 continues this theme describing both the receding waters which leave behind destruction as well as the people of Nineveh as they retreat out of the city, leaving the invaders to plunder the silver and the gold. Through their brutal conquest, Nineveh had heaped up treasures from the the enemies that they had conquered, and here the invaders were plundering that and helping themselves to that. 
the fear is described in verses 10 where it says, Hearts melt and knees tremble, anguish is in all loins, all faces grow pale. Here this mighty conqueror of Nineveh was running in fear from those that were invading. We see the destruction of the enemy of God. But who are the enemy of God, enemies of God? We see certainly in the text that the Assyrians were, they were brutal, they were wicked, they were vile. Yet God used them to accomplish his purposes, but that did not make them God's friends. They were wicked sinners who lived in constant rebellion against God. Their gross and rampant wickedness was very much an offense against a holy God. I won't go into details, but they were not only ruthless in their inhumane treatment of their enemies, they were grotesque in how they treated even the body of, bodies of their slain enemies, skewering them to display them for the world to see. This was a wicked civilization. They were the enemies of God. But the Assyrians are not the only enemies of God. Every one of us are born in sin and are rebellious against a holy God, the God who made us. Adam and Eve's sin of rebellion against God is passed down to each of us. At its heart, sin is a rebellion against God. We don't have to brutally kill and display the bodies of our enemies to be in rebellion against God. Apart from the rescuing and atoning work of Christ, every one of us is in rebellion against God. We are God's enemies. James 4.4 reminds us that the one who wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself the enemy of God. The world in this verse in James is really anyone and everyone who is in rebellion against God's sovereign reign and rule. But James also teaches us in chapter 2 that that it's possible to be a friend of God. Abraham is considered a friend of God. And what an amazing title that is to, to see Abraham put forth as a friend of God against those who are the enemies of God. And Abraham's faith is put on display. And I dare say that we too could join the ranks of Abraham in this title if we have the kind of faith that he had. He had a deep abiding trust in the hand of God that he could not see. Abraham received and rested in the promises of God and then acted upon that faith. It was an active faith, as James tells us. It's not that works are necessary for Abraham's or our salvation, but the good works that Abraham did and that we will do are the natural outflow of the life of faith in God. Some are considered the friend of God, but some are still his enemies. But why then must God destroy his enemies? God must destroy his enemies because he is a holy and a just God. If you remember the illustration we used as we considered the first chapter of Nahum about how God is the judge, and that's really the theme of this, of this passage and, and of our message this morning. But we, we think about a, a judge, and a judge is not good if a judge does not punish sin. A judge is responsible for upholding righteousness and goodness in a society. No good judge will let an evil person go free without punishment, without a penalty paid for their sin. And God would not be good and holy if he did not punish sin. This principle is displayed for us again in chapter 2. We know that God is holy and pure. He is holy, 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 the seraphim said. Our sin is so 
antithetical and such an offense to his holiness and purity that it must be punished. But what does this teach us about God and his character? Well, first of all, we know from understanding this text and all of Scripture that God is sovereign. God is showing that his sovereignty reaches over all, even the most powerful regime in control at that time. We rightly decry injustice where we see it and atrocities committed in other places. But we must remember that any person or power can only go as far as they are allowed to go by the one who is the true king over all people and powers. The book of Job teaches us much about God's sovereignty as he was a man who wrestled through things that he did not understand, suffering that that was unexplainable in human terms. He wrestled with that, and his friends offered their explanations, which were no help to him. And towards the end of this chapter, you see, it seems like Job is wearing down as he begins to question God and gets somewhat reckless in his accusations. And God responds with a bunch of questions to him, in essence saying, Who are you, Job? Where were you when I made the world? God asks Job in chapter 40, Who then is he who can stand before me? Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine, God said. Job responds in chapter 42 and he says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Job's voice joins with all of Scripture in saying that God is sovereign. He is king. He rules and reigns. Job said, he actually said, I put my hand upon my mouth. He was so humble that he said, it's time for me to be quiet. You are God, and that's really where I need to rest. God is absolutely sovereign. God is also omnipotent. He is all-powerful. We, le- we know that nothing is too difficult for God. He certainly really can do all things. He can and will and did bring down the evil empire of the Assyrians. In language much like the verses we read in Isaiah, the prophet Ezekiel proclaims, And all the trees of the field shall know that I am the Lord. I bring low the high tree and make, the high, make high the low tree. Dry up the green tree and make the dry tree f- flourish. I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it. God is truly all-powerful. God is holy. God's holiness speaks of his moral perfections. God's holiness is something that we probably do not dwell upon enough because that is, it is an essential character of his being. Thomas Watson said, Holiness is the most sparkling jewel of God's crown. It is the name by which he is known. His name is holy. He is holy in his name and in his being. Robert Louis Dabney wrote, Holiness is to be regarded not as a distinct attribute, but as the result of all God's moral perfection together. It is, in a sense, the summary of his moral perfections. Holiness speaks of God's purity and perfection. And it's His holiness, among other things, that makes Him completely separate from us. God is holy, and He is ultimately the judge. God's holiness is manifested in His judgment. That is a natural outflow of His holiness. He is perfect and upright in all His ways. 
And this results in judgment upon those who rebel against and challenge His holiness, His purity, and His authority. If God is against you, you should be very afraid. Verse 13 tells us that in very straightforward language. Understanding God's power, His purity, and His judgment should help us to fear Him. But as we read in verse 13, we should tremble. And if there's here anyone here that's outside of Christ, I want you to contemplate these words about how God expresses Himself against those who are His enemies. He said, Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messenger shall no longer be heard. God is a God of judgment. We have seen that God will fulfill His purposes and that God will destroy His enemies. And finally, Nahum 2 teaches us that God will restore His people. We know that God is pleased to set His love upon His people, upon the elect. He has always had a chosen people. He says that in the midst of the destruction of Nineveh, He is restoring the majesty of of Jacob. Assyria was the oppressor of the people of God, and here God is bringing relief for his covenant people. We know that God loves his own. We see that from the, the opening pages of Scripture that God condescended to Adam and Eve. He made a covenant with them, he communicated with them, he spoke with them as they walked in the garden. He showed them how to live pleasing to them, he told them of their privileges and responsibilities. In short, he set his love upon them. The prophet Ezekiel speaks of God being the shepherd of his people, the one who feeds them and leads them and protects them. He said in the New Testament that he is our father, that we are adopted into his family, that we become his children through faith in Christ. He even invites us to address him as father. We are his children. We are also, as God's people, we are his treasure. God said in Exodus 19, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. God delights in his children. The prophet Zephaniah reminds us in in language that for a long time I didn't even know was in Scripture. Listen to this beautiful verse. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Imagine that, the God of the universe delighting in his children in such a way that he will exult over us with loud singing. This, of course, is shown most beautifully and completely in the work of Christ. Through his sinless life and sacrificial death, his love was shown. But it was not just the work of Christ, the second person of the Trinity. It was all persons of the Trinity that participated in this plan of redemption. Christ's incarnation, life, atoning death, and glorious resurrection were all part of God's plan to redeem His people and to pay the penalty for their sins. But God's destruction of His enemies is a blessing on and a vindication of His people. Here God is actually blessing His people in removing the oppression of the Assyrians that has been upon them. And that leads us to think of the final deliverance for which we, as God's people today, wait upon. 
1 Corinthians 15, that wonderful chapter upon the resurrection, tells us, Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. We serve a risen king who is the conquering king who will put down all of his and our enemies. The defeat of Assyria is representative of the final defeat of evil of which we read about in Revelation 18. There it's the wicked city of Babylon, which ironically, it was Babylon that defeated the Assyrians in the book of Nahum and in the Old Testament. But in Revelation 18, Babylon is emblematic of all wickedness and spiritual idolatry and infidelity. And in that chapter, Babylon is destroyed and never to be found again. And the Apostle John is told to rejoice over this destruction. Verse 20 says, Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. God's judgment upon His and our enemies will bring relief and comfort for the people of God. This is not to say that we should rejoice in the death of the wicked, for we know of their fate that hell is an awful place reserved for the devil and those that follow him and those that persist in the rebellion against God. We, as those upon whom God has bestowed his grace, we should be eager to share the love of Christ with those that do not yet know him. We should be eager to tell the gospel to those who are currently the enemies of God in hopes that they are part of the elect and will become friends of God. But in the end, it's those who persist to the end in being enemies of God that are really our enemies as well. Those are the ones upon whom the wrath of God will fall. Those are the ones who should fear knowing that God is against them. If this describes you this morning... If you are in rebellion against God, hear the word of the Lord from Nahum 2.13. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. Hear this warning from God, but also hear the invitation of Christ. Where he says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Come to Christ, come to that place of refuge, repent, believe and trust in him. He invites you to be adopted into his family. Christ is crucified for you and has provided a way of salvation. Come to be part of God's family so you too might call him father. Let us pray.